It's time once again for On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and we are talking today with actor, playwright Mike Milligan. Mike's acted on Broadway, most notably in the smash hit August Osage County, and in dozens of other shows and regional theaters throughout the country. His plays include Heroin, Urgent Aliens, and a reading of his play Phaeton was presented by the Harold Clarman Theater Lab with Mark Rylance, David Hyde Pierce, and Joanna Lumley. His love of Shakespeare has taken him around the world, performing the Bard for places such as the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Cincinnati Playhouse, St. Louis Rep, and the Utah, Alabama, Illinois, and Colorado Shakespeare Festivals. He is a sometime instructor of Shakespeare at the Stellar Atlas Studio of Acting. His latest play is Mercy Killers, a one-man show which deals with health care in America. Mike will be performing it at the Lehman Alternative Community School Black Box Theater on February 20th and 21st. We started off talking with Mike about how Mercy Killers began. Let's go back to the beginning of Mercy Killers. What what exactly moved you to write this? Where did the story come from? Well, um, I hadn't given much thought to our healthcare system. Uh, I think I think young people that's that tends to be a problem. Is that young people we? You know, think that they are invisible. I was going to say we, but I'm I'm no longer really in that category. <laughs> uh, um, and so it's one of those things that you don't really think about. Uh, but then I was in a relationship with someone for um, a while who had uh, had a condition that required a lot of medical attention, and uh, we were living together and. Um, I observed and participated in the struggle to try to access health care and pay for it. Um, she was also an, an artist, and uh, so often what that means is no health insurance. So she would spend a period of time freelancing uh, to try to make money uh, to to buy some insurance or pay for for healthcare and um, exhaust herself and then go through a period of, you know, focusing on, on taking care of her condition. Um, what were the, what were the and, bills like? How much were they? Oh, well, these weren't, these weren't like the, the catastrophic sort of, you know, 14, 15,000 kind of things. These were just like out of pocket, you know, thousand dollars a year, $1,500 a year. Well, it can still ongoing. make a hell of a big impact these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially for um, people who are pursuing a vocation in the arts. That's yeah. more than, mm-hmm. you know. In the midst of that experience, I, I sort of had a bit of an awakening in, in realizing how much for several years of my life had felt like it was consumed by just trying to stay afloat. Right. Um, you know, helping helping my partner and... Uh, trying to pay the rent and keep us afloat, and um, that, that's and a horrible so it, amount of stress for it is. It is, and and it's it places uh, incredible stress upon a relationship, um, which is something that which uh, isn't talked about, and that's what a big part of Mercy Killers is about. Is about the sort of unspoken emotions that accompany uh, a medical crisis mm-hmm. uh, between between a couple. And um, that's layered in there 
Um, and it's, and again, yeah, it's something that I think people don't talk about it because those, those feelings and thoughts are not particularly, uh, things that we want people to know. Well, it's, it's kind happen. of like kicking the bogey monster <laughs> under the bed. If you mention it, yeah. it, it will, it, yeah, it's don't, when people get superstitious, don't talk about that. Yeah. You'll, you'll make something bad happen. Um, mm. I know I grew up extremely fortunate, but, um, my father worked for a huge company and had unbelievable health care. Right now, my wife has excellent health care also. So I personally don't live with that fear of not having insurance. But there's always uh, something in the back of my head that says, you know, I'm 54 at this particular point. I'm about to enter into the last whatever portion of my life. Um, and sickness is going to be more and more often. I mean, this, you know, it's a body. It breaks down. And I keep wondering what would happen if we didn't have insurance. And it's a frightening, frightening thought. You just have to make it to your Medicare eligibility. So that was the first experience. Um and what that what that made me realize was that we live in a country where we've been experienced been, been experiencing what I call a medical holocaust. And I use that language. I know that's a strong thing to say, but I believe it. There are you know, depending on the estimates, sixty thousand people a year who have died because of just because of lack of health insurance. Mm -hmm. um, and when you add those numbers up over the, over the uh, course of time, that becomes an immense figure. And, the, and, and it's a silent thing because when it happens, you don't hear from those people because their entire lives become consumed in trying to stay afloat. Um, and also there are the feelings of shame and humiliation surrounding it that that keeps people silent inside, not reaching out, um, and exhaustion, of course. Uh, right. So, so then the next thing that happened was I was doing a show in Washington D.C. at the Folger Theater, and uh, uh, an old friend of mine, a classmate from drama school, showed up at the stage door, and he had been living out of a uh, out of a bag. He was homeless for a year and a half. He has a a mental break uh, a year and a half before. And so he was, he was struggling living on the street and I brought him in, brought him in, took him in to my temporary actor housing and was trying to get him situated somewhere, um, long enough, uh, before he could make the arrangements to get out of DC to his extended family. And, um, he also had some medical problems. He had this big, 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 big lump on his arm and a slit disc, uh, in his neck. And, um, so I, you know, I said, Hey man, we gotta, you, you really gotta get that stuff checked out. So in addition to trying to figure out the housing situation, um, I looked into getting him some medical attention right. and, um, and it was a, it was very difficult and unsuccessful. Um, uh, what did and, you do? What, well, I was like looking for some. I was looking for some kind of, uh, you know, free clinic. And problem was he didn't have any ID. Um, we found one free clinic attached to a homeless shelter. 
uh, called there, told them the situation, got to the point where we were going to schedule an appointment, and the woman said, now you do realize we require proof of homelessness. How does one provide proof of homelessness? Well, you have to be registered full-time in one of the homeless shelters. Okay. Problem is, my friend had been in one of those situations, but it was a, uh, a pretty extreme fundamentalist evangelical homeless shelter mm-hmm. where they had required Bible studies um, and meetings. And uh, my friend, who is actually the son of a, a, a preacher, actually had kind of Unitarian or transcendentalist views. And so he was saying these things in this, you know, in this Bible studies and right. some guy just didn't like that he was intruding and interrupting and, and shaping the course of the dialogue and had it out for him and uh, basically had him ostracized from this homeless shelter for some strange reasons. And um, oh, that's very lovely, you know, doing to others as you would have them doing to you. Very, very strange. It was very strange. Um, they had to wear these badges, which denoted their rank, you know, in terms of their uh, progress through right. these <laughs> whatever. Is this, but, is this like an so AA that, thing? That's why, you got a 90, 90 uh, day chip or something? I don't know. I don't know. But but he, he he was no longer allowed to go there to stay, and so that was that's how he would have got, had right. his proof of homelessness or whatever. So, so he was no longer um, a member and they couldn't use that. That's beautiful. Yeah. And, and to, to get that proof, you know, you have to, it takes time. And that's the thing that I realized was, you know, he had a whole, a full time job of being homeless because he had, <laughs> he had all of these meetings and appointments that he had to get to that were across town from each other. And you, he had to walk to all these places. Yeah. Right. Um, sure. you know, miles apart and the homeless shelters, many of them, you have to be in the shelter by two o'clock in the afternoon because they want to keep you out of trouble or something or else you don't get a bed. So all of these things that he has to do, right. you know, he's got to do before two o'clock. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was, and he's not, again, he's not in a place where he can really do that stuff on his own. It seems like they're making it more and more difficult to get anything done, any kind of relief, because we have to, I don't know what, quantify everything, fill out databases like uh, they're going out of style, or validate a person's need for basic human... Yeah, 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 and that's what I realized there was, you know, if I was in another country me and him could have walked into the same office uh, and gotten a, both gotten appointments in the same, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. we were people. We were obviously people, so we would be seen and treated. The thing that I took away from that experience was that my friend, when he showed up, occurred to me as a threat. The way two, two men swimming in the ocean one of whom starts to drown that kind of threat because Mm -hmm. I was struggling in my own life to keep myself and my relationship afloat to have someone appear before me who needed my help was a threat to me. Sure. 
And, and so that was a heartbreaking experience to feel those contradicting emotions inside of me, the desire to help my friend, and then also the feelings of danger that my friend represented. Um, and that is something that we shouldn't have. That is a, that is a horrible burden to place on our intimate relationships. It's, yeah, a, horrible, it's our, a horrible place for your soul to be put into. I mean, survival yeah, I, I, against I somebody so. else's needs. So. It's, yeah. I think so. I think so. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting uh, that everything be free for everyone, but a certain basic level, you know, of, of dignity for human beings, um, that's not too much to ask. Aren't we the last uh, mega industrialized country to not have a socialized medical care system? There, there's a fascinating book by a guy named T.R. Reed. It's called Sick Around the World. And he goes around to different countries around the world to find out what it would be like to get his uh, shoulder operation in these different countries. Mm -hmm. And they all have different systems. Yeah. I mean, when you, you, when you say the word socialized, you know, some people <laughs> will turn their, their listeners off, their uh, ears off. Yes. But these, these countries have such a wide, there's such a wide spectrum of how they accomplish two things. The first one is that everyone has access to healthcare. The second one is that no one in the country goes bankrupt because of medical bills. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there are true socialized systems like England where the doctors work for the government and, and everything is paid for through taxation to like Switzerland where you have private insurance companies, but they're highly regulated. The prices are, are set by the government. Um, which is very different from what we have right now um, to, you know, Japan has a, a unique system mm -hmm. um, and they all, so they all reflect their own national identity. And, sure. uh, and I, I do hope, I mean, I personally would am for and am an activist for a single payer model, but even within a single payer model, there are many different, Absolutely, there's a lot of ways to make this happen. And as far as yeah. I know, none of those countries are going broke or have you know gone to hell yet. Um, well, you know, you'll you'll hear you'll you'll see some report, you know, from a certain type of media <laughs> where they talk about <laughs> where they talk about oh the the Canadian or French healthcare systems are you know the funding is blah blah blah. So so they uh, they they don't what they don't point out is that. The healthcare costs in those countries are drastically lower than here. Right. In addition to the the moral component of the argument for universal healthcare, there's also the economic argument that it costs less, and it also would be a great stimulus for business because you're no longer shouldering business with healthcare costs. Exactly. Um, that are bloated. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's start talking a little <laughs> bit about the play itself. By the way, if you're just tuning in, folks, this is on stage, off stage. I am your host, George Sapio, and we are talking with playwright, actor Michael Milligan about his 
new play, which he's taking everywhere, Mercy Killers. And it will be appearing in Ithaca February 20th and 21st at the Black Box Theater at Lehman Alternative School. So the writing development process is like, uh, is this typical for you? Was this a, a different way of getting this thing written and worked out on the page? How did this progress? Uh, the play, you know, the play really incubated for a long time. Um, in terms of personal experience. Uh, and then when I actually resolved to, to start working on it, it actually, the first draft came out very quickly. I did uh, an incredibly immersive amount of reading um, and research into both the healthcare system and then also the financial crisis because the play is set just post-recession uh, so that figures into the struggles of this uh, working class family from Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, I, I really wanted to get to, to thread in that circumstance and that milieu into a very personal um, life that, these, that this couple has. Uh, and, and so that was, that was incredible. I don't think I've ever read that much that intensely in such a short period of time. And then, um, and then I would give myself periods of, of, you know, just sitting down and, and imagining different circumstances of, of this couple's everyday life. I kept a little notebook with me and would get, you know, ideas, um, and I would write those ideas down and then later on would sit and expand upon them. And, um, and that was, it, it really, it really uh, was very easy. And then I just took all those little incidents and put them in an order and saw how I could thread, <laughs> yep. thread through the, the whole story. And, Putting the uh, building blocks the, together. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the first draft happened. I thought that I had written, you know, the great, next great piece of American theater. I, I, had, might have. <laughs> I, I took it over to my friend to read aloud to me and it wasn't very good. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so, first drafts. No, no, no. <laughs> so, uh, so we talked about it and, and realized what was missing was the identity of this person. And, um, and what came out of that conversation was that it would be most interesting if this guy was uh, was a you know a libertarian, mm-hmm. maybe maybe a Tea Party guy, and that this is he's dealing with this situation and he has this worldview of things, and he and and so that really is the primary um, conflict within the play is the guy's experience coming up against his belief right. system in gonna, terms of he's always it. done the right, he's done the right thing. Yep. He's self-reliant. He's taken responsibility for himself and his wife. And this thing happens and it doesn't make any sense. And so he's yep. grappling with trying to deal with the tragedy, but also trying to, maintain his sense of identity and worldview. Well, and, I, uh, I think as, as Americans, we, 
we we live under this onus, this legend, this this apocryphal whatever that we think of ourselves as self capable. We you know we've always been the strongest. We'll go out and do it. We don't need anybody else. And we're we have this idea of ourselves able to stand alone against adversity. It's and I'm thinking that this mindset is a major factor in our distrust of again that word socialized society, especially socialized medicine. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was Steinbeck who said socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And that makes yeah. it harder for us to buy into a system that you know, we don't work for, we don't have to earn, that we don't earn on our own. Um, and your choice of Joe as you know, let's a Tea Party person as a basic American, as opposed to let's say, you know, some moneyed graduate school professional. I'm just was was that because you wanted to see him more as someone who's a blank slate to the entire situation? I mean, what it takes to go through to get health care? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have access to the same resources as uh, the kind of person you're talking about. So. And also geographically, you know, things are very different mm-hmm. uh, in, in rural areas in terms of accessing health care. Um, just to go back to, to what you were saying about this theme of self-reliance, um, because that's very important to the, in the play. Sure, yeah, uh, in, 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 in examining that, you know, I really try to, and the way I wanted to structure the play was as a tragedy. Yeah, in sort of almost a classical sense. And for it to be a tragedy, the central figure then has to be a noble character, right? So so I, I've, I've done my best not to make fun of Joe, uh, you know, because he's a person that I disagree with, <laughs> right? probably. Um, I, I've really tried to explore the the nobility of that sentiment of self-reliance, um, but just showing what happens when that virtue reaches its limit or is excessive. Um, and I think that's, that's, a, uh, that's where we find ourselves is sure. That's a noble thing, right. but it's, it's limited and we don't recognize any limit to it. I think that, that it actually, I, I was in Scotland this summer and um, for, I did the show at the Edinburgh Festival uh, in Scotland, which right. was really a, a remarkable experience. What I took away from that experience was, you know, what you were talking about, this suspicion of government. I think that this suspicion, we're we're actually still suspicious of King George, you know, (laughs) (laughs) our ancestors came over. We haven't let that go yet. (sighs) No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. So, so we have this, this hatred of big government, but it's, it's a big government that is, is controlled by, King George or, you know, the Scott, my Scottish ancestors, right. the government was just the, the tool of these landlords who controlled everything and, you know, and, and prevented you from working on your own land. 
right? And so I, I think that, you know, in, in many ways, the American Revolution was a response to that kind of oppressive government of an elite, mm-hmm. right, coming over from Europe. Right. Um, and somehow now we still have kept that paranoia of, of government, um, but without any sense of the historical situation and well, I think the memory uh, and, and, of, and now we we are ironically still in a situation of having ourselves controlled by an elite <laughs> yes but it's a and and you know but it's a it's a that it's a revolving door yeah. corporate financial and government but you know so i mm-hmm. i think that's a, there's an irony there i also think that that feeling of of, of self-reliance um, comes from a an earlier time when there was a lot of free land or very cheap land. So if you had any kind of gumption, you just go get a piece of land. And if you can't if you can't prosper on a hundred acres, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> probably. Where did you, need you to get up? off your? What, what, I grew what was, up in Ohio. What was your childhood like? I mean, did you come from a economically enhanced background or something more like Joe's? I come from one generation away from Joe, but my, my dad was a lawyer, okay. <laughs> a, a small town lawyer um, of the Atticus Finch variety. Um, we loves our Atticus so, Finch. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, his, his dad grew up on a farm and then my mom's side of the family were, you know, farmers long time and then uh, steel workers. So, so I, I saw a video of this show being performed in an open space for people on the street. Where was that? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> wow. That was uh, one of those interesting theatrical experiences. That was in Williamsburg. <laughs> I love Williamsburg, when people use Brooklyn. the word interesting. Well, there's I've had a lot of those with this show. Yeah, I'll bet um, yeah, that was that was in Brooklyn. That was in Williamsburg, and it was it was pretty pretty interesting experience. It was what kind of it was that weekend? Did you that? Um, well, you know, it was that weekend in the fall when there was all you know when the sequestration stuff was the budget stuff was like peaking, and the central complaint about the budget was Obamacare, right? Right, of course. Uh, so so it was. It was poignant that there's this guy telling his story, right, about how he and his wife were screwed over by an insurance company Mm -hmm. Um, and having it on the street (laughs) or protruding out into the street on Saturday night as Brooklyn hipsters are going about their ways to have fun. (laughs) <laughs> so people would stop and and listen, and uh, and yeah, that was it was interesting. I mean, from an acting acting point of view, it was it was brutal. Did people know you um, were acting? Yeah, yeah, we we had it. Well, I yes, yes. okay, not <laughs> not just some guy yelling at everybody going by, telling a story. No, no, no. Okay. Have you ever no, taken the show but, to let's say a more affluent? area of town or no, you know, a theater in some place that is, you know, not that America has classes, but if we did have classes, I would say, you know, wealthy class, upper class, that sort of thing. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, 
I had a really interesting experience um, around that same time uh, at, at a really, really posh, lovely uh, retirement community in um, outside of D.C., Maryland. What's that? One of those fancy suburbs, the kind of place where you got to put up a million bucks to get one of these beautiful <laughs> mm-hmm. apartments in. And, and because it was outside of D.C., you know, it was people who were, their careers were in civil service or some NGOs. And so very, very intelligent, well-read um, community of retired folks. And I was a little, I was a little concerned about it going into it. I was like, geez, are these, are these old folks going to like want to hear a play called Mercy Killers? You know, (laughs) I mean, it sounds like it's about, it sounds like it's about assisted suicide and that's a small part of the play. But, Mm. um, but they were, they were a fantastic audience. And I usually will often have a, a panel discussion after the show, but they were, they, they, they really enjoyed it. And I think they appreciated, they, they, they get a lot of entertainment in there. You know, that's like the barbershop quartet or the whatever, blah, blah, blah. Sure. but these are, these, these people, these are old folks who are news junkies and spend all day, you know, talking about politics and da 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 da. So, so it was, it was, Interesting, and they were all very sympathetic. So it was a largely um, positive response. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Is that is yeah, that typical they, for the show? I mean, is most of your what, what's your responses like? Uh, do people love it? Have people taken issue with it? I haven't had I haven't had that many people take issue with it in a way that was you know confrontational or where they felt like they had to let me know about it after the show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the people who, who have responded to me who have identified themselves as either libertarian or conservative, those responses have ranged from um, sympathy for the character. Yeah. Yeah. Like, wow, you really evoked that guy who I recognize and know thank you for doing that to a kind of apologetic, like, Hey, Hey man, we, you know, we, we were moved by the story and, and we care, you know, we care, we care about people. We just had to have a different, different solution to the problem. And we don't believe that government can, you know, administer things efficiently, blah, 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 all that stuff. And how deeply do they explain their solution to the problem, or do they? Well, this one person who was a CEO of a company, she, you know, leaned over to me and she said, she said, you know, hey, we, that was really well performed. Um, You know, we, we care. Uh, Our solution has to do, well, I said, well, what would you do? And this is what she said, which was shocking to me. <laughs> she said, Uh-oh. I would, I would, I would make all hospitals and insurance companies not for profit and limit the, uh, administrative salaries to two, let's say $200,000 a year. 
Uh. <laughs> uh, which that you know my uh-huh. jaw dropped and I was thinking that sounds so much more radical than Obamacare <laughs> yeah uh, that's anyway, uh, I'm, I'm still but, digesting that one yeah 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 um, um. And, and you know I, I have you know I it, it isn't it isn't a a left right uh, issue. I, I don't think it is. I mean, I've I've had people on the right make extraordinarily insightful um, observations about the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. You know, and they'll call it like these state monopolies. And there's some truth to that. You know, right? That the insurance companies are entrenched monopolies, and the part of the the, the way that they're there's an argument can be made for that sure is because you know the states they're they're attached to to, to states yes. and they, they they get a have a monopoly in state um, and so their solution is well you got to you got to get rid of you know the the state lines preventing sale of insurance right and and there's a there is a whole I think there is a sincere argument by some people for that. Um, on the other side, though, then you have the problem of, oh, well, then some horrible insurance company from uh, Alabama or something will offer the cheapest, lousiest product to people across state lines. Although I, I can also imagine a some sort of compromise situation where you have highly, highly regulated federal exchange that mm-hmm. allows that kind of thing that serve, that satisfies the, the uh, you know, satisfies the demands of both sides. Right. But, but again, I, I, I don't want to <laughs> confuse people about where I stand. I would like there to be a, a single payer system. Sure. However, I would be overjoyed if the debate was about, the methodology that we were going to provide universal health care for our nation, whether it was going to be through this highly regulated um, uh, system with private insurance or a, you know, but that isn't quite the argument that we're having yet. Not yet, but maybe we will. A couple of more questions and then I'll let you go. Without giving anything away about the play, which I absolutely encourage everybody within listening distance to go see, it's it's unbelievably powerful. Um, Where does Joe go at the end of this thing besides the logical location, depending upon his actions? But where does his heart go? Where does his mind go? Who does he does he become somebody else? Where do you see him in five years? I don't know. I, I, uh, I mean, I think he could go one of two directions. He could, he could either go, he could become bitter and mean, meaner and angrier, or the experience could open him up, you know, mm-hmm. to, um, to doubt about his, his worldview and, a and, in terms of ideology right. and the more, more, more open and compassionate in terms of his heart, right? right. Being able to 
sympathize with other people. Um, and, and I actually, that's, that's why I wrote the play. That's why I wrote the play because, uh, in the hopes that Joe would go in that direction. And, and I, and I think that that's, that's our way forward is to approach these problems from, from, uh, our humanity, our heart. Yeah. That, yeah. that that foundation has to be there before we engage our intellect in 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 finding the reasonable way forward. Without without that empathy, underlying empathy, then the intellect is unmoored and has no anchor right. to what's most important yeah. to us as human beings. In a sense, Joe is the the everyman and we see his reactions and we see his journey as that of a lot of us. And I guess we hope that he will survive. Uh, last question on a totally different subject, because it's one of my favorite books ever. You did an adaptation of the sea wolf by Jack London. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why? And where can we go see this? Um, well, I was doing a show at a theater in, uh, it's very funny how sometimes things happen. I was doing a show at a theater in, uh, that was off Broadway, a really great theater that was around for a while called Manhattan Ensemble Theater. And they specialized in doing, uh, adaptations of, you know, literature. So, right. uh, you know, they, they started out with a couple of plays based on Dostoevsky novels. And then there was The Castle by uh, Kafka, really great show, okay. Death in Venice. Um, and so we were closing, doing closing weekends. The show I was working on was The Gollum. And, uh, you know, I said to the artistic director, I was an actor in the show. I said, hey, what, what are you going, what are you going to do next season? And he said, I don't know. You got any ideas? And I said, no, but um, let me go home and uh, I'll, I'll have an idea for you on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I went home. I went home and I was laying in bed looking around looking at the bookshelf and that was the book I saw. I saw Seawolf and um a friend of mine at Juilliard had done had adapted a just a you know one of Wolf Larson's speeches mm-hmm. into a monologue for a uh, for a class and I and I remembered it and I thought, ooh that could be a really, really great play. So I went back on the, the Monday and, and said, you know, the sea wolf. And uh, he said, all right, let me, let me see. Why don't you, you, you write the first scene and then a synopsis. And so from there, it grew and grew and grew um, until the, the whole thing was written. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think it's very good. It, it hasn't been produced anywhere. Um, I've done a number of readings of it with some really high-profile, wonderful uh, actors, um, but uh, it's it can be difficult to to produce a play with with that large cast of characters. So. Sure, but I'm still I'm still I'm still confident and hopeful. But in some ways, um, that experience. Uh, I've, I've written a couple of plays like that with big casts and 
the difficulty of getting them to the next level in terms of actually being produced uh, led me this time to consciously write a one-man show because I don't have to wait for anybody before I can do it. I can I can do it anywhere, and I have done it anywhere in a church basement. In right. a, you know, in a, uh, that that's uh, a problem. I think most of us playwrights have. I haven't done a one-person show yet, but. I have been tailoring my shows for small cast, low tech, and extreme portability. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I do remember reading the Seawolf as a youngster and being struck by the 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 brute force versus the goodwill argument. And yeah, especially Wolf Larson's one quote about you talk about ethics and mores, and we're the only two people two people on this boat who know the meaning of those words. Yeah, and that's always stayed with me because it's in in a way it's yeah. sort of, sort of a, a reflection of life in general sometimes. Yeah, yeah. No, I I I absorbed, you know, I really absorbed Wolf Larson for for that year I was working on on the piece, and uh, he's a remarkable character. He is, he is, and yeah. it's it's all it's kind of like a inoculation a little bit, you know you. You drink in a little bit of Wolf Larson. You have to wrestle with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. uh, to come to come out on the other end still with a with you know a sort of benevolent view of humanity. But that's been 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 through the test of 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 fire. True, kind of like what Joe's going through, I guess. From Wolf Larson. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mike Milgan, it has been an absolute yeah. pleasure to talk with you. Uh, um, you too. Everybody out there, uh, Mercy Killers. February 21st, uh, 20th, 20th and 21st at the Lehman Alternative Community School. Go see this. Do not miss it. Mike, do you have your own website? It's mercykillersdeplay.com. Mercykillersdeplay.com. Have a great time. We'll see you up here in Ithaca. And thank you so much. Thank you.